This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's David, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's David Gura, and it's been a week of legal and political drama. Inside the E. Barrett Prettyman Courthouse in Washington, former President Donald Trump is arraigned again. Reporters from around the world were gathered outside along with some of his supporters. We got a Trump there king with an America first king. So I would support King Trump coming back, occupying the White House again in January 2025. As always on the News Roundup, there's much to discuss. This week, I think there's likely too much to discuss. But of course, there's no harm in trying. With us is Benji Sarlin, the Washington bureau chief at Semaphore. Zoe Clark is the political director at Michigan Radio and the co-host of It's Just Politics. And Idris Calhoun is the Washington bureau chief for The Economist. Welcome to all of you. And let's start where else but with the arraignment of former President Donald Trump, which happened on Thursday. When you look at what's happening, this is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him. We can't let this happen in America. The return of tarmac talk. That was Donald Trump talking to reporters at the airport after he pleaded not guilty to four felony charges connected to his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Benji Sarlin, I'll start with you. Donald Trump, of course, the leading candidate in the 2024 Republican presidential race, as he reminded us in that clip, currently charged in two other criminal cases. Let's focus on this one to start. What are these four charges that have been levied against the former president? So all the four charges are essentially part of the same story here, which is that he's being accused of participating in a conspiracy to try to essentially overturn the 2020 election through various means, through using uh, trying to set up a scheme in which they used fake electors that they would try to substitute for the real ones on January 6th by trying to pressure uh, you know, the, his vice president into illegally trying to overturn uh, the election by trying to pressure officials to change vote counts. All of these feed into the same four counts, which is him trying to uh, get out of the fact that he lost the 2020 election by any means necessary. And some of these are going to be a challenge to prove. Some of these we don't necessarily have the best precedent on because there's not much precedent for a U.S. president just trying to stay in power through what some would call a self-coup. Uh, so it's definitely going to be an interesting legal case, but all the charges relate pretty directly to that. Benji, let's go into that courtroom yesterday and the magistrate judge spelling out the gravity of these charges to the defendant, to the former president in court, including what the potential penalties would be here. What, what are they? What, what is Donald Trump, the defendant, looking at when he looks at, at what charges he might face? So... 
Politico went out and added up the maximum sentences for all the charges he faces, not just in this case, but also in the uh, Manhattan DA case over hush money payments, as well as the classified documents cases where recently there were more charges added in a superseding indictment. And it's 641 years on paper. And in fact, Trump is actually sending out fundraising appeals with these kinds of numbers Uh saying, you know, you have to donate right away. They want to put me away for hundreds of years. Now, look, in practice, obviously, that's not the case. Um, A lot of those years are technically from the Manhattan hush money case, which seems very unlikely to yield jail time. The other cases, especially classified documents, are things people really do go to prison for routinely, especially when there's obstruction of justice involved and no plea deal. But there's also the issue of the judges in these cases who could decide that it's maybe not the best idea to send someone who is currently running for president or has recently or might even be president by the time they're making a decision. Uh, they, they might not want to sentence them to actual jail time, even if they are convicted. So it, it's hard to say if he ever actually does get jail time, even if convicted. Idris Calhoun, I, I printed out the indictment after it was unsealed. Jack Smith said to read it. I, in fact, did. Uh, and therein are six co-conspirators, one, two, three, four, five, six. And after this was unsealed, this game began of trying to figure out who each of these is. Help us with that parlor game that's played out uh, in Washington, indeed, across the country. Who, who is this rogues gallery? And do we have a sense of these individuals, if, if they'll be charged as well? Yeah, so this week's Washington cryptic crossword, everyone is uh, in agreement that they have a pretty clear solution. So co-conspirator number one, uh, it seems, uh, is Rudy Giuliani, who is the president's uh, lawyer and seemed to be spearheading uh, a lot of the efforts to uh, create these slates of fake electors. Um, A lot of this indictment borrows from the report of the January 6th committee from the work of their hearings. Um, So these actors will all be familiar to you if you followed um, that one. So in addition to that, there is Sidney Powell, uh, another Trump attorney, John Eastman, who is the constitutional lawyer who came up with the theory that Mike Pence could uh, basically, with plenary authority, uh, decide which votes counted and which ones didn't. Be very interested on his thoughts about whether Kamala Harris could do the same in 2024. Uh, Jeffrey Clark is a is a former Trump DOJ official uh, who, if you remember that mini saga, um, was uh, almost appointed, it seems, the head of the Department of Justice. Um, and there are others as well. But uh, everyone seems to think that they've identified the six co-conspirators. And, um, you know, we don't know whether or not there will be uh, future charges future charges levied against them. Uh, this indictment was pretty simple. It was pretty streamlined. It was directed just to Trump. Uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, seems very intent on doing a trial uh, speedily, uh, maybe before the uh, election. And uh, by not charging them, he has reduced the complexity of the case and made it more likely that this comes to trial in a faster, uh, faster version. Zoe Clark, so we've we've got the New York case, we've got the case involving classified documents, and and now this. Um, I'm curious if you could maybe you could put this in sort of a broader historical context, help us understand the magnitude uh, of this. Um, I look at sort of how the Times, the New York Times described this. It was perhaps the most momentous. The Wall Street Journal yeah. saying that their resonance uh, in this plea of two words was was enormous. Put into the broader context, if you would, looking at these other cases. Right. I mean, the fact is there isn't historical context, which I guess is the historical context. (laughs) I mean, it's a little meta, right? But I mean, the fact that 
and this isn't the first time with this former president, that everything seems to go with the word unprecedented. Um, and, and yet again, here we go, you know, three times in four months and looking like we're going to see, you know, charges this this month in Georgia. And so, you know, I think for folks who watch this every single day, like all of us right now talking about it, we see the magnitude, um, the history-making moments that each day seems to portend. But I think we also have to put it in the broader context of what this means for folks who don't pay attention every single day. And that is not that is not their necessarily faults, right? Folks who are going about their day trying to, you know, get food on the table, working one or two jobs, picking up kids, um, paying for daycare. And it's hard to keep track of all of this. It's hard for all of us to keep track of, of each of these indictments and what this is going to mean. And I think there needs to be a conversation about, you know, when you talk to some voters who say, oh, well, this is just another another court case and, and making sure that we all understand the importance of this uh, that happened this week because it's fundamentally about, about our, you know, democratic norms and processes. And the indictment against the former president was brought by special counsel Jack Smith, who delivered a brief statement on Tuesday. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. Idris Calhoun, we see him there at that podium <laughs> and, and wonder about his background and his biography. And I wonder what you can share about that. We haven't heard a whole lot from, from Jack Smith. We know that he's worked as a prosecutor in Tennessee and New York. He's worked in The Hague. What can you tell us about his background and how he's approaching this role that he was given by, by Merrick Garland, the attorney general? Yeah, we know that he's a straight shooter. We know that he went to Harvard Law School. A lot has been made about his uh, competing in triathlons and coming back from uh, broken legs. Uh, he seems like a pretty uh, sturdy guy. People have examined um, his prosecutorial career in The Hague, as you mentioned, uh, and in New York. And his reputation is of one of being a tenacious prosecutor um, who doesn't stop investigating, uh, even in the most difficult circumstances. Uh, he's tried, uh, for example, John Edwards, the uh, uh, former Democratic presidential candidate uh, in court. He lost that trial. Uh, but he's pursuing a very aggressive case against Donald Trump. Uh, like Benji was saying, it is one that is unprecedented in terms of the charges because the American legal system did not really contemplate the possibility of a, of a president uh, doing a self-coup. And so there are these charges that to a layman seem odd, you know, conspiracy to to fund the United States, defraud the United States, uh, conspiracy um, to uh, obstruct a governmental proceeding, uh, but he's going to pursue it, and he's he's seems to be pursuing it fairly relentlessly. Um, you know, he got this charge only uh, less than a year ago um, after the January sixth committee uh, had finished his work, um, and so he's moved very quickly on a very complex case, uh, not just this one, but he's also the prosecutor who brought charges in the classified documents case uh, from a while ago. It can be hard to keep all the indictments straight uh, as you as you recount them. Let's come back and talk a bit about timing. On Tuesday, Donald Trump posting on the site Truth Social, quote, why did they wait so long? Because they wanted to put it right in the middle of my campaign, end quote. We're heading into a quick break. When we return, more on the timing of these indictments, looking ahead to what may happen in Georgia as well. Back with more in a moment. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. All right, back to that third indictment now. And so far, we've heard a lot from the prosecution. How about Donald Trump's lawyers? Well, we're seeing the contours of their defense, and they're making an argument that the special counsel's investigation into the 2020 election is an attack on the former president's right to free speech. Hours after the charges were unsealed, Trump's attorney, John Loro, accused the Justice Department of having criminalized the First Amendment. Loro asserted his client had relied on the advice of the lawyers he had around him in 2020. Well, Donald Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, is not convinced that argument holds water. He spoke to CNN on Wednesday. He can say whatever he wants. He can even lie. He can even tell people that the the election was was stolen when he when he knew better. But that does not protect you from entering into a conspiracy. All conspiracies involve speech and all fraud involves speech. Free speech doesn't give you the right to engage in a fraudulent conspiracy. Zoe, we're talking about intent here. Uh, and how hard is it going to be for prosecutors to prove that? Well, and that's exactly it, right? And it's this idea about free speech, as we heard Bill Barr talking about. But that is not what this case is about. And as you noted, David, you know, read the indictment, 45 pages. As Jack Smith said, read the indictment. It's not long. You can do right? it. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. So eat Friday night reading. <laughs> indictment and chill. Um, and you read it. it and you better understand that that is not what is at the case, right? Because you can you can lie. And that's what he's saying. You can lie, but you can't lie and have a conspiracy where then you are trying to overturn an election. And that is what we basically see these prosecutors saying and why, to the point of Donald Trump now talking about how long it took to bring this case, so much evidence and witnesses have said this is what the president knew and this is what he continued to say or lie. There's been some early debate over what exactly Donald Trump was asking his vice president to do on January 6th. Here is Trump's attorney, John Loro, speaking to CNN's Caitlin Collins on Tuesday. The final ask that Mr. Trump made to Vice President Pence was simply pause the voting. There's nothing inherently unconstitutional or illegal about that. In fact, he had an, an opinion from a very well-known constitutional scholar that said that's fine, that that's legal. And the following day, former Vice President Mike Pence seemed keen to correct the record. Here he is on Fox News. The president specifically asked me and his gaggle of, uh, of crackpot lawyers asked me to literally reject votes, to, which would have resulted in the issue being turned over to the House of Representatives and literally chaos would have ensued. But the American people deserve to know that President Trump 
and his advisors didn't just ask me to pause. They asked me to reject votes, return votes, essentially to overturn the election. Uh, I rejected that out of hand, and I did my duty that day. Benji, Mike Pence has repeatedly told reporters he doesn't think prosecuting the former president is good for the country. What else have we heard from the former vice president since this third indictment was unsealed? Yes, on Fox News, but also at the uh, the Indiana State Fair. So let's let's start with that he says it's not good for the country necessarily. You know, that's been pretty common refrain from Republicans. The difference with Pence is that he has not been dismissing the charges as necessarily wrong, and he has definitely not been shying away from the details of the case and what he finds especially troubling about Trump's behavior, which, as we all remember, quite literally could have gotten Mike Pence killed on January 6th. Those were Trump supporters out there chanting hang Mike Pence and looking for him. So Pence has made very clear that he is going to directly rebut Trump's defenses. And he is very, very likely to have to do so at some point as a witness under oath in this case, because his version of events is pretty clear. Now, in this case, he's rebutting what's become an early Trump defense, which is that it's actually exaggerated that he was trying to overturn the election at all. They were just looking at some kind of pause so they can go back and look at these issues in the states again. Um, Pence is making clear that's not true. That's not how his presented to him, the famous uh, memo by John Eastman, one of the unindicted co-conspirators in this case, made it clear that, you know, the goal uh, of one of these scenarios they imagined with with Mike Pence was to, as he said, force the election to go to the House, where they presumed that Republicans would essentially overturn the election, that they would hand it to Trump. So it, you're the interesting thing about Pence here is that he is not being quiet. He is not doing some whataboutism where he, he says the real story here is that there's a two-tiered system of justice. He's saying Trump did serious th- things here that should disqualify him from being president, and we're going to go over the details. Idris, pick up on that, um, something that Benji's getting to there, and that is we, we have a former president here who's uh, had, let's say, a, a loose relationship with <laughs> the facts of history. He's prone to to rewriting them. How does that change now that the crucible has, now that he has been indicted in these three cases and he is facing a, a trial in all three of them? Well, you're right that Trump has a very postmodern um, <laughs> take on epistemology. If you but will. The, uh, yes, okay. If you will, if you will allow me to indulge in that. But uh, courts um, are have a more conservative, traditional view of knowledge and, and truth. Um, and so it will be difficult for Donald Trump to use the tactics that he's employed so um, spectacularly in the, in the public sphere in the courtroom. Uh, he will have to address facts with facts. His lawyers can be censured uh, for filing inaccurate uh, information. And so I think that will make it um, difficult. Now, as as Benji was talking about, uh, Mike Pence uh, has been one of the few uh candidates who are running for president, um, who is critical of of his former boss. Uh, many of them, like Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, are indulging in interference for on behalf of the president. That's the hold that he has over the over the party itself. But within the courtroom, um, you know, the lawyers are going to offer this defense that Trump didn't know that uh, the election uh, had been lost and that he sincerely didn't know that. And that'll be their, their primary defense. And, you know, it's an unprecedented enough case that we don't, I think, really know how uh, that argument will shape will shake out. Um, but, you know, and the other cases that is brought against him, the uh, classified documents sort of uh, case, um, the post-truth attitude, I think, may not get him very far. America's pretty clear statute about uh, you know, how to handle extremely classified materials. And the indictment has a picture of boxes of these materials in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, 
getting out of that will, again, there might be a turn on <laughs> Trump's mental state and this idea that he might have declassified things in his mind, which is certainly a novel argument. Uh, but, you know, the Trumpian attitude will, I think, uh, find some difficulty in, in the courtroom, and that includes under Republican judges just as much as it uh, is under democratically appointed judges. There is something indelible about that image of uh, document boxes stacked one on top of another uh, in the bathroom. Um, Donald Trump's closest rival for the Republican nomination, albeit at a distant second, and we'll talk more about that in a bit, is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And this week, DeSantis didn't directly address the charges that are laid out in the indictment. Instead, he chose to go after where the trial is going to take place, saying, quote, D.C. would indict a ham sandwich and convict a ham sandwich if it was a Republican, end quote. Well, here's more from the Florida governor during an interview on Fox News on Wednesday. I think Americans need to be able to remove cases out of D.C. I think the juries are stacked. I think that they're going to want to convict people that they disagree with. Or at a minimum, you should be able to draw a jury pool from across the entire country. That is really uh, what's at stake in terms of do we have a single standard of justice or do we have a track of justice where if you're connected to the swamp, you get off, whether it's Hunter Biden or are we going to live under a single rule of law? And I think we have to reestablish a single rule of law in this country. Zoe Clark, turning to you in in Michigan, I wonder how resonant this argument is, the criticism that we've been hearing of the jury pool, prospective jury pool in Washington, criticism of the the courts there. How is this ringing true, if at all, with, uh, with voters there in Michigan and elsewhere? Yeah, well, first, I think we just have to do the the sort of bingo card of that we got both the swamp and Hunter Biden in one statement um, all, at, all at once when we're talking about this. Um, you know, here in Michigan, I, you know, again, it was what I was talking about earlier. I think these are very nuanced, you know, ideas about things that we're paying really close attention to. Um, do you get a fair trial in D.C.? You know, these are folks who lived through the insurrection. And in some respects, I mean, that's part of what a jury of your peers is meant to be. Um, In Michigan, you know, there's been over the past few weeks um, notice of felony charges against folks who were fake electors. Uh, This happened last week. And then this week, a former attorney general candidate who was endorsed by Donald Trump charges against him for literally trying to steal a voting machine, a tabulator after the 2020 election. So I think those charges uh, are all happening parallel and it's piqued folks' interest. Um, but in terms of who the jury pool is going to be, I-, I don't know that that's what's you know keeping folks up at night. Benji, I mentioned we're going to get to timing here. And I'd love to ask you just about how complicated this calendar looks. We'll talk about Georgia in just a moment here. But you, you have these three cases so far, perhaps a fourth. How How does this conversation take place among these various courts about how to schedule all of this? How does the former president and his defense team navigate all of these, it's not even dueling, (laughs) this many-faceted legal front that it's facing? Well, it's going to be quite the process. I mean, already we have dates set up, you know, at pretty key points along the political calendar for the uh, the trial in the Manhattan case, as well as the classified documents case. But it's possible things could change. In general, Trump's legal strategy in the past and probably here is to try to delay things as much as possible. So we don't know where they're going to uh, to end up. So it's going to be, you know, a bit of a complicated process here having, you know, potentially four different <laughs> jurisdictions and judges all figuring things out with various, you know, motions to try to delay this or take time for this or that. We're, we're going to find out. But the one thing that's clear is that, look, the legal news is going to hang over this entire election. There, there's just no scenario in which this is all resolved 
you know, it's definitely going to be not resolved by the primaries, but even the general election. This is, there's, even if he's convicted on some of these, there's still going to be appeals going on. And then the race will in many ways be a referendum on whether he should be, you know, elected again and pardon himself. It's just not going anywhere. Benji Sarlin is with Semaphore. Idris Calhoun is with The Economist. Zoe Clark is with Michigan Radio. And Donald Trump and his legal team can next expect to hear from prosecutors in Georgia investigating attempts to subvert Georgia's 2020 election results. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis says the results of her investigation into the former president will be made public in the coming weeks. I've made a commitment to the American people, but most importantly, the citizens of Fulton County, that um, we were going to be making some big decisions regarding the election investigation and that I would do that before September the 1st of 2023. And I'm going to hold true to that commitment. We've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go. We're ready to go, uh, she says. Benji, uh, we talked earlier about the, the latest federal indictment needing to prove intent. How much do we know about the, the legal arguments and the strategy that would be laid out in this case? Well, it's very likely that there's going to be a lot of these same facts that they're looking at. And again, we don't know if, if Donald Trump is being charged. We don't know who exactly. But they're looking at a lot of the same things. For example... Uh, This investigation very much arose out of the famous call to Brad Raffensperger that we've discussed before, where Trump talked about trying to find just the exact number of votes that he needed to uh, flip the state. There is also a fake elector scheme in Georgia that's part of the Jack Smith indictment. Uh, I believe some of those fake electors have accepted immunity deals in this investigation. So obviously there's extreme interest in what they have to say. Now, some of the differences here, we mentioned how, oh, you know, they might have to do some some novel moves with, you know, existing law just to fit, you know, what Trump did into a federal indictment. That's federal laws. Georgia, there's speculation that their state laws might be especially potent for prosecuting the kind of behavior that we've been discussing here. You know, there's laws specifically against trying to compel people to commit election fraud. There's a very broad racketeering law that makes it easier to sweep up multiple co-conspirators together. So it's possible that this could be uh, the toughest uh, of all the cases for, for Trump, even more than the federal indictment. Zoe Clark, Benji, describing kind of the, the different flavor that that case would have, the, the sort of influence of state politics on that particular case. And I saw that the local sheriff in Fulton County told ABC News that Donald Trump should expect to be treated like any other defendant, in which case, if he's indicted, uh, there won't just be fingerprints, there will be a mugshot. We haven't had these in these these other indictments. Um, the, the district attorney was uh, elected as a Democrat. Why, why are Trump's attorneys trying to get her disqualified from the case? And how does the sort of political backdrop affect what's going to happen here in, in Georgia? Right. In fact, so there's this hearing on specifically that scheduled for next Thursday. Trump's lawyers have filed a motion um, that, as you know, D.A. Willis should be removed from the case um, because they say she has a conflict of interest Um Arguing that she's, you know, fundraising for her reelection campaign by using this case, which I, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty rich when it comes to the idea of fundraising around some of these cases, as we heard at the very beginning, Donald Trump doing just that. We're waiting for this indictment to come down in Georgia. And as you note, it could look very different. And then I think there's also the legal conversations because, you know, behind all of this is this idea that if Donald Trump were again to become the Republican nominee, if he were to win the presidency, right, that he would try to pardon himself. And that is why there is this timeline that many are pushing to have these cases happen before the election. But at issue here is the idea that he wouldn't necessarily be able to pardon himself in a state case like that. So that adds to this sort of additive uh, difference when we're looking at this Georgia case. 
It is rich, uh, as Zoe Clark says. And just reading here from from the New York Times, I note that um, Donald Trump's political action committee, which began last year with $105 million, now has less than $4 million left in its account after paying tens of millions of dollars in legal fees for Mr. Trump and his associates. Idris, in, in the minute we have left here before we take a quick break, uh, I saw this great line in The Economist that uh, in this coming year, all voters will be acting as jurors, given the scale and, and scope of these these investigations. I'd love for you just to to uh, to, to comment on that, sort of what, what we're looking at here politically, not just in Georgia, but across this country because of these indictments. Yeah, well, we know that in the primary, it looks like these indictments don't seem to be having much effect on Republican voters. Um, they seem to uh, motivate people to actually support the president even more. But it's unlikely that these will be resolved um, before the primary election and certainly and maybe even before the November election. Um, and so, you know, the on the ballot will be uh, uh, whether or not Trump goes to jail, I think, in a lot of voters' minds. We're rounding up the week's biggest domestic headlines. We'll be back with more after this short break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day, all in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. Let's get back to the news roundup. And let's move to the big business stories of the week. Today's jobs report from the Labor Department says the U.S. economy added more than 180,000 jobs in July, slightly less than Wall Street expected, and the unemployment rate dropped to 3.5%. Idris, help us understand what this means for the economy Broadly, we've had a very resilient labor market month after month after month. What's it mean for the economy? What's it mean for workers as well? Uh, perhaps a bit too resilient for the liking of the Federal Reserve. So like you said, uh, 187,000 jobs is no small feat. It's not as hot as the American economy was running a few months before. But that 3.5% unemployment rate that you mentioned is uh, very close to the record low uh, that's been registered. Um, one thing that, uh, you know, those at the Federal Reserve will be examining very closely are the wage numbers. Um, so average hourly earnings rose a bit more than 4% when you compare to about a year ago. Um, and that reflects, uh, you know, uh, uh, it presages increased uh, price inflation. Uh, that's something that the Federal Reserve has been trying very hard uh, to tamp down. It's been increasing interest rates um, and has done so uh, in its last meeting. Uh, it might continue to do so. Uh, it is now trying to sketch this delicate balance between interest rates and inflation, um, hopefully without triggering a recession. That seems less likely now than they had been anticipating. Uh, But there is a very delicate uh, game that's being played. Um, And these job numbers, although they're good for a lot of Americans, um, will have some macroeconomic consequences that are tricky to sort out. Benji, the, uh, the big three credit rating agency, Fitch Ratings, downgraded the U.S. debt rating this week. Here is J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon speaking to CNBC. It doesn't really matter that much. Uh, you know, the markets decide. It's not the rating agencies who make these big decisions. This is the most prosperous nation on the planet. It's still the most prosperous nation on the planet. 
There are a bunch of countries rated higher than us, like AAA, but they live under the American uh, enterprise military system. For, to have them be AAA and not America is kind of ridiculous. On Wednesday, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called the downgrade, quote, entirely unwarranted. Fitch rating singling out the U.S. for problems with its debt and deficit, also governance issues as well. Benji, how much does this matter? Do you do you side with uh, with the head of the biggest bank in this country that it really doesn't, that investors are going to see through this? Or does it does it say something important about the state of, of the fiscal house here in the U.S.? Well, I'm not the one who decides whether it matters. As, as Jamie Dimey mentioned, it is more investors here. We're not seeing some like panic, like, oh my God, one of the three major ratings agencies changed their rating. Like that, That's not been happening. And I think one of the reasons is that, you know, we, we were talking earlier about the job numbers yes. and inflation. This downgrade didn't really have much to do with that at all. It was fundamentally about political concerns, which is that the U.S. system of governance is, you know, falling apart. But I don't think people are buying the argument that well. I mean, they named the debt ceiling, which is something that indeed, like I and many others have reported, is a serious threat to the U.S.'s credit. But we just went through this debt ceiling fight, and it was totally anticlimactic. They worked out a pretty reasonable deal ahead of time. There wasn't nearly as much brinksmanship as people feared going in, even with, you know, a, a stark divide between the Senate and, and the House. Uh, and, you know, our reporter, Joseph Tobias Roig, also reported that Fitch brought up January 6th in conversations mm-hmm. about the Dan Gray as well, kind of wrapping into our previous uh, uh, conversation here. And so these are real concerns, but they also are ones that the market has thoroughly absorbed. You know, they just watched this play out in the previous months and years. They're watching it play out right now. Um, I, I don't get the sense this is going to be some major, major factor moving forward. Idris, when you're on the phone with with colleagues in New York and, and London, where The Economist is based, I wonder what they make of how things unfold in, in Washington, especially when it comes to events like the debt limit. And uh, because of my day job, I, I listened to the entirety of that that interview with Jamie Dimon, and something he called for was the elimination of the, the debt limit. He says, what we want is confidence, uh, and we could get more of it if we didn't have the debt limit in place. <laughs> what do people in other important global capitals with whom you work, who you talk to, make of the way that the business is conducted in in Washington. As we heard there from Benji, yes, there was all of this back and forth and we tiptoed to the brink of default, but we didn't get there. And it does strike me that there is this strange confidence that investors globally have in the U.S. that uh, we will peer over the edge, but but not fall in. I think uh, my colleagues have amused befuddlement that sometimes turns into horror as we get closer and closer to uh, to going over these self-imposed ceilings like the debt limit. Um, you know, and there is a, um, you know, resistance. There's this feeling that, you know, the boys cried wolf when it comes to the debt limit. So markets don't react until the very last moment. Uh, a lot of, you know, Brits who I work with say, oh, it's just the Americans being American again. Um, yeah, that's kind of what we're known for at the moment. Um, so far, you know, the the global economy is still based on, on the dollar and investors aren't, um, you know, seeking to put their their funds or, or enact their transactions in Chinese currency, uh, so America has that going for it. But um, you know, at some point, uh, you know these these games can go too far. Uh, particularly if America had gone over the debt limit this time around, um, there would have been some pretty bad consequences uh, as well. And and America also has been over the last few years spending. Um, you know, kind of wartime level deficits uh, for a time that's relatively peaceful. Uh, its debt to GDP ratio is growing. Its entitlement, uh, you know, promises might not be fulfilled if you look at the projected rates for the trust funds. So um, that's that's you know, my colleagues look at that in London and and worry a bit. Um, but uh, such is life. Such is life. 
Let's wander, if we can, into this um, this public square that Elon Musk has has acquired and is trying to shape here, that being X, what was formerly known uh, as Twitter. And in tech news this week, uh, X Corp has sued an organization that tracks hate uh, and harmful speech. That's the Center for Countering Digital Hate, uh, looking for sort of hate speech on social media platforms. Zoe, what are what are Elon Musk's claims against this group, and and help us understand the importance of of this lawsuit again in this context of uh, a mega billionaire here buying a site that he purports to <laughs> t- turn into About a place where we can speech. all have free speech? Yes. Right, right, right. Uh, well, so basically, as you note, X Corp is suing the Center for Countering Digital Hate, and it's quote a scare campaign. They say trying to basically drive advertisers away from advertising on X. Uh, the CCD. H has reports that shows that X or Twitter uh, did not do enough or did nothing against hateful posts on the platform. Uh, but X is arguing that the CCDH actually broke the law by sort of scrapping this data and then selectively choosing posts to show that Twitter is basically a public square that is flooded with hate speech. And I, I don't think anyone who is on Twitter or X would disagree, right, that that this sort of idea of free speech and what you can say is out there, um, being you know live on the radio, you get those messages mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's actually what did X Corp do once you know they were seen and and that these accounts were shown to be putting this hate speech out. On Wednesday, when I spoke with Imran Ahmed, uh, founder and CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate, let's take a listen to that. And I think what Mr. Musk is most frustrated by is that what we have done is through our analysis, through our quantification, we have held up a mirror to his platform. And he has looked at the reflection and thought, crumbs, I don't like that. And instead of doing what any normal person would do, would think, which is, you know, maybe I should have a haircut, maybe I should, you know, I should brush my teeth more. He thought, I'm going to sue that mirror because clearly I must be perfect. And it's the mirror's fault. Idris, we'll see how all of this plays out. I would love to get your sense of sort of the state of... Uh, of X, of of what was Twitter now, and picking up on what Zoe says, it does seem like there is more more uh, more hate speech than before. There are more ads for Cheech and Chong than than I thought there there could be. It's kind of a bizarre mix of of of, of a lot of both of those things. Um, it lives on. Twitter dot com still takes you. What what's the state of X as as you see it, and how do you see its prospects? Um, I I would not give it high marks. Uh, you know, it's gone private, so we don't have a, a stock price to benchmark against. But we know that uh, companies that have put investments in have been marking down the value of Twitter. So Fidelity a few months ago uh, said that its shares they were valued at two thirds of the price uh, when Musk took over. Uh, another uh, investor uh, marked it down by about forty seven percent. So you know they they, they don't assess that that Twitter is doing well. Um, there have been changes to the platform that have annoyed users. Uh, you know, the, the verification stuff that journalists are maybe a little bit too obsessed with um, has been turned on its head. And now I, I was just reading that um, uh, you'll be allowed to hide your uh, blue check if you don't want the sort of opprobrium that comes that comes from that, uh, which is an interesting inversion of what things were. And then, of course, you know, we're I'm still saying Twitter. It's supposed to be called X. Uh, the demolition of uh, brand value is, is fairly significant there. Um, you know, you don't you don't sort of rename Coca Cola X Y Z and, and hope for the best. Um, you know, you, there's a reason people stick to brands, and so uh, Musk's implosion there is is not the best uh, not the best decision. But you know, it's a good reminder that. Um, 
incredibly successful billionaire entrepreneurs um, can make mistakes and do so in a very public uh, forum. <laughs> yes, the infallibility of, of, of billionaires is pretty there. Uh, Idris Calhoun is with The Economist. Benji Sarlin is with Semaphore. Zoe Clark is with Michigan Radio. I'm David Gura. This is 1A. And one more business meets science and tech story. The family of Henrietta Lacks reached a settlement with the biotech company Thermo Fisher Scientific this week, more than 70 years after the Johns Hopkins Hospital took Lacks' cancerous cervical cells without her consent. Lacks was a black woman, and I should say the settlement amount remains confidential. Benji Starlin, remind us why those cells were taken and, and how important they have been to, to medical research in the decades since. Uh, the cells were taken from her as part of a general research program, but what they found with those cells particularly was remarkable. They had these amazing traits in that they were essentially immortal in a lab setting. You could keep making more of them. And what that meant is you could do a variety of scientific tests you would normally have to do on people on this line of cells instead, which enabled all sorts of medical research, including into the polio vaccine and later the COVID vaccines. And one thing I find interesting about the settlement is that the uh, the immortal nature of these cells was actually part of the legal argument, you know, because this happened so long ago, the statute of limitations had seemingly passed. And the argument was, look, the cells are still multiplying. It still is Henrietta Lacks. You know, it's every time it happens, uh, you're restarting the statute. Uh, of limitations. So it, it's interesting that they, they even played a legal role in this case, uh, the, the kind of out, you know, the kind of wild, miraculous uh, traits of these cells. Zoe Clark, this is an incredible story, of course, and told so well by Rebecca Sklut in her book, The Immortal Life of, of Henrietta Lacks. Um, help us understand how big a deal this settlement is in, in that historical context. Yes, this is 70 years later, but, um, but the, the family has reached a deal and that that is important. Yes, and it's dramatic and it's emotional. And I, I think it shows how far we've come as a society. Um, but it also shows how far we we still have to go. I mean, to read from the initial complaint, I'll just read it. Quote, the exploitation represents the unfortunately common struggle experienced by black people throughout history. I, I mean, I think that that says it, right? Um, and, and interestingly enough, um, to this point of just sort of how long it's been, I just want to note um, that that lacks only surviving child now uh, 86. He was 16 when his mother uh, died is is alive to see this justice. I want to wrap up here with a, with kind of a broad question to you, Benji, and, and I'll, I'll read here. We got from a, from a listener, from many listeners are writing with something very similar, but the question is, why is the media talking about Donald Trump all the time, including us today, of course? Uh, is, is there a risk here that the media is repeating old mistakes and giving him so much free airtime. We started, we talked about post-structuralism earlier in the show. So I'll give you the big thing question here. Here, Benji, talk a bit about how you you see that issue, giving attention to the story, which as we've talked about, has such huge historical import. It is unprecedented, as, as Zoe and I talked about a little a little while back. How do you see that, that fine line, Benji? Uh, this might seem like a bit of an odd take. I think it's sort of gone the opposite direction, mm. which is that we've sort of have just like normalized that, yeah, Donald Trump gets indicted every few weeks. <laughs> this thing that was this insane, unprecedented thing that when even there were like, you know, fairly, fairly minor in the grand scheme of thing charges in Manhattan related to a hush money payment, few, few people really cared about much in the news. You know, that was treated as this huge cable event that was all day with helicopters. I feel like every time since then there's been legal news, it's gotten a little less attention and been accepted more as background noise, even as the charges become much, much more serious. And I, I'm not sure I accept the premise that there's they're overindulging <laughs> coverage of this case. Mm. 
Zoe, you want to jump in on that? Do you agree Do, with what, what you're hearing? Well, yeah. I, I just want to read something actually really interesting. So I know you're getting listener comments at, at Michigan Radio. We do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to just note, you know, we're talking about the economy. We're talking about how uh, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, needs a strong economy going into the election. Of course, it's the economy, stupid. But I got this listener comment that, that says, the show is half over and I've only heard the word Biden quickly and then only connected to Hunter. I understand the concept of news, but we do have a current president doing important work for our country. And and how fascinating that this is where we are as a country in the dynamic, right? That that there are all these things happening. And you can be uh, against what Joe Biden is doing. You can be for it. But again, yet again, you know, former President Donald Trump is the one that sort of takes all of the oxygen and takes all of the air. I would argue that we need to be talking about this for the hour, again, because of the historic nature of these indictments. But it does mean there isn't necessarily room for the conversation about everything else that's happening in the country. Zoe Clark is with Michigan Radio. Idris Calhoun is with The Economist. Benji Sarlon is with Semaphore. My thanks to all of you today. I really appreciate the time. And I'll note it's been quite the week for women's sports. The Women's World Cup underway in Australia and New Zealand. The U.S. Women's National Team, the competition's two-time reigning champions, barely made it through to the round of 16. They are vying for a third straight win, which would be unprecedented in the Women's World Cup. The team set to play their next match on Sunday against Sweden. If you're like me, you're setting that alarm for five in the morning. Eastern time for the start of that game. Coming up, talks resume between Afghanistan's leaders and the U.S. for the first time since the Taliban took over and more drones hit central Moscow. All this and more ahead during the global edition of the News Roundup. Stay with us. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. Let's switch gears now and turn to the biggest news from around the world, starting with more drone attacks in Russia this week. And 91 countries, including the United States, signed a communique committing to end the use of famine, starvation and food as weapons of war. You'll remember Russia pulled out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative last month. Here's Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the United Nations this week. Since Russia pulled out of the arrangement on July 17th, ignoring the world's appeals, grain prices have risen by more than 8 percent around the world. Kenya's foreign ministry called Russia's move, and I quote, a stab in the back. We'll get the latest from Niger, where the military junta received support this week from regional neighbors. And... Look for the bear necessities, the simple bear necessities. Forget about Is that a bear or a man in a bear suit? A lot of hullabaloo as a zoo in China finds itself in the middle of a very strange controversy, one we will not shy away from today. With us are Uri Friedman. He's the senior editorial director at the Atlantic Council and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. Anna Edgerton is a reporter at Bloomberg News who covers tech policy and lobbying. And Sean Carberry is the managing editor of National Defense Magazine and the author of the memoir Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home, a book that will be published on August 15th. Thanks to everybody. And let's start with the latest on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Drones struck a skyscraper in Moscow twice this week. 
Ukraine has not taken responsibility for the attacks. But after the first attack on Sunday, President Volodymyr Zelensky shared a video message online. President Zelensky there is saying, quote, gradually the war is returning to the territory of Russia, to its symbolic centers and military bases. This is an inevitable, natural and absolutely fair process. Sean, I'll start with you. What is the significance of the suspected Ukrainian drone attacks and the willingness to attack inside Russia's boundaries? David, this is largely psychological operations, right? I mean, this is in an effort to undermine Putin, um, cast doubt within Russia about uh, Russia's capabilities. You have Russian officials who claimed that they intercepted the drones or at least somehow uh, disabled them to some degree. But that's kind of contradicted by the fact that two drones hit the exact same building within a matter of two days. So uh, this is significant for Ukraine in terms of showing that they can strike within a five-mile distance of the Kremlin, of showing that Russian defenses are are not invincible, uh, and really a, a high-profile type of thing that doesn't affect Russian warfighting capability directly, right? This, these were government offices. These weren't military facilities. But it shows the fact that uh, Russia is, is vulnerable and uh, it's designed to essentially undermine Putin and stoke anti-war sentiment within Russia. Sean, just a quick question about the, the mechanism itself. You, using these drones, we've seen so much imagery of the sort of anti-ballistic systems that have been deployed in, in Ukraine. Talk a bit about the, the use of drones here and how that complicates things for, for, for Russia. So when you talk about drones, I mean, there's, there's a huge range of, of size and capability. And, you know, a lot of people tend to picture sort of the drones that the United States has used for years in counterterrorism and that those are, are drones designed to, to fly, conduct reconnaissance, uh, fire missiles, and return to base. But a lot of the drones that are being used in this conflict are one-way or you know, so-called suicide drones. And so they're not designed to, to come back to base. They're designed to hit targets. Sometimes they have explosives. Other times it's just the impact. And so they're, they're harder to defend against. They can be smaller, more maneuverable, um, you know, again, easier to get past detection because of the fact that they're smaller, they fly lower. Uh, so, that, you know, drones have been an enormous factor for both sides of the conflict mm. uh, since it began. Or as I look at what happened over the course of the last week, there were these attacks in Moscow. We saw Russian missiles striking a residential building in the, the, the city where President Zelensky grew up. At least six people were killed there. Seventy-three were wounded. And then in the southern frontline city of Kherson, at least five people killed by Russian shelling this week, including a doctor who died after a hospital there was, was bombed. Again, we're, we're kind of logging all of the tragic updates here. Stepping back, or give us just a, a status check on, on where each side stands, what, a, a year and a half into this conflict? Well, they stand a little bit at something of a stalemate. Uh, Ukraine has launched a counteroffensive, and it is making slow progress, but the progress is not um, as great as some expected, in part because the Russians are very dug in defensively, um, and also because they've made extensive use of landmines that are really hard to clear. And as a result of that, Ukraine is not able to move um, as quickly as they would like to take up new positions. They have made some gains, but... 
I think what you're seeing right now are kind of attacks on both sides, um, efforts to uh, gain some sort of advantage, um, whether psychological or actually physical, but not actually a ton of movement on the battlefield. And that has resulted in a lot of jockeying over other ways to win over, um, uh, you know, backers to their efforts diplomatically. Uh, So you've seen Vladimir Putin hosting African leaders in St. Petersburg. Uh, He didn't get the showing they got back several years ago when they did the similar summit. He only had about 17 heads of state uh, come. And we're also expecting uh, a a, a meeting in Saudi Arabia uh, this coming weekend where uh, Ukraine is hoping to win over other countries in other regions uh, to their peace initiative. So you're seeing because there's a lack of major gains on the battlefield, you're starting to see a lot more maneuvering and activity on the diplomatic and even economic uh, arenas to try to gain some sort of advantage over the other and also position each other um, to to basically accomplish their vision of what they want to achieve out of this out of this conflict. That's Uri Friedman, and I'll use host prerogative here to recommend his latest article for The Atlantic, Vladimir Putin and the Parable of the Cornered Rat, kind of a, a, a rethink of how we think of, of, of Vladimir Putin, the president of, of Russia. Uh, early on Wednesday, Russian drones struck a port in Ukraine holding grain shipments. Nearly 44,000 tons of grain were damaged. This comes after Russia decided to pull out of the so-called grain deal last month. The Black Sea Grain Initiative had protected the safe passage of Ukraine's food experts. And Edgerton, what are the, the global implications of this? We, we knew it was going to be bad. Indeed, how bad has it been? How bad have we seen it be since, since they pulled out of that deal? Yeah, I mean, kind of two things that I'm watching with this most recent attack, besides, of course, the reliance of both sides on using drones to carry out these attacks, uh, you know, the first being just the impact on global grain markets and the geopolitical implications. You know, China, of course, has been a constant supporter of Russia, at least diplomatically, if not militarily, and they are the top ex- um, destination for Ukraine. Uh, for the export of Ukraine's agricultural products. So the fact that Russia is um, interfering with the export of those products could really have impacts on its allies. Um, Another top destination also being Turkey, which, Mm -hmm. of course, uh, brokered that initial deal. Um, The second thing to really remember about these attacks is it's right across the river from NATO. You know, this is the second of two attacks in, in recent weeks on a port city on the Danube River that you could see the fires burning from Romania, which is a NATO member. So you definitely see kind of the expansion of this conflict and how it's getting very close to NATO borders. Anna, you heard her there just a moment ago mentioning uh, this gathering that's going to take place in Saudi Arabia over the weekend to discuss the war and the Ukrainian president's 10-point peace plan. Russia was not invited, isn't going to be there at that that meeting. What are, broadly speaking, the objectives of, of the talks that are going to take place in Saudi Arabia? I think you know, the most interesting thing for me is just that 40 countries will be there. Like you said, not uh, Russia, but it does go to show that this is not just a Ukraine plus NATO uh, kind of a- agreement. This is not just um, you know Ukraine counting on Western allies. That there are other parts of the world that also support President Zelensky trying to um, kind of socialize his ten point peace plan and work towards that. You know the fact that Russia is not there but will monitor the talks is very interesting, and the fact that China opted to send a senior official is also very interesting. A, a sentence handed down in Russia today: Alexei Navalny was sentenced to nineteen more years in. in- prison in Moscow on extremism charges in in a new case. Not unexpectedly, he said yesterday he anticipated a, quote, Stalinistic sentence. Why is the world watching this case so closely, continuing to watch this case so closely, and what does it mean for this major opposition leader? 
Well, it, it's just the continuing effort by Putin to chill dissent in in Russia. I mean, this is one of the most outspoken Putin and regime critics who uh, has continued, even though he's been imprisoned and in this trial, to get messages out through social media periodically criticizing Putin, calling on the Russian people to resist the war effort. So this is someone who is a you know, high-profile international critic, and Putin is trying to send yet another message to the people of Russia to basically toe the line, keep quiet, and ensure that uh, Navalny's message doesn't, uh, doesn't get any traction. And the other significant part of this is that the sentence is looking to, uh, to move him to an even more secure, remote Russian prison – uh, which would make it uh, more difficult for him to try to get any messaging out going forward. And let's turn to the latest in West Africa. After a military coup nine days ago in Niger ousted President Mohamed Barzoum, lots of developments this week, European countries started evacuating their citizens out of the country. And on Wednesday, the U.S. ordered the evacuation of U.S. families and non-emergency personnel. The U.S. has yet to call this a coup. Instead, they are referring to it as a, quote, military takeover. Here's what National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said on Thursday. We've been tireless in our diplomatic engagements at the highest levels to help the people of Niger preserve their hard-earned democracy. As the president said in a statement this morning, Niger is facing a grave challenge to its democracy. And at this critical moment, the United States stands and will continue to stand with the people of Niger. Uh, I want to reiterate our support for democratic values, for constitutional order, for the rule of law, and for human rights, including the right of peaceful assembly. And we continue to call for the safe release of President Bazoum and his family. The U.S. is still pushing for the return of elected President Bazoum. And this morning, he published an op-ed in the Washington Post calling on the international community to return his government to power, warning of, quote, devastating consequences for the world if the coup against him succeeds. Uri Friedman, how likely does that seem at this point, now a few days into this? I mean, it's possible, but it doesn't look extremely likely right now. There's been no evidence um, that the um, people who seize power are willing to cede it back to Bazoum. Um, and, you know, the ECOWAS, which is a uh, economic group in the region of West Africa, has threatened to potentially even use force um, if if uh, constitutional order isn't restored. They gave a deadline of August 6th, this Sunday. So we're, that deadline is looming. Um, and we have seen no movement that they are um, going to – that the uh, – military insurgents that, uh, you know, took over power are going to cede power again. There is some leverage here. One, the threat of force is real. Um, ECOWAS has done military interventions before um, in the Gambia, for example, in 2017. Um, But it's unclear if they really could do this now. They would have to tap into a lot of support from the Nigerian military, for example, which is the largest military in the region. Um, The U.S. also has some leverage. It, It, you know, has said... It could halt aid um, uh, to um, to the country and uh, France as well, and other back you know other Western countries could exert some pressure. Uh, but so far, it's been there's been no evidence that the pressure that has been uh, you know threatened to bring to bear has influenced the calculations of those who have seized power. Anna Edgerton, let me ask you about 
sentiment in this country. I've read so many dispatches from the country, and many of them stress that in the capital, for instance, business goes about uh, as usual. There, there's always a mention of the fact that uh, there seem to be a lot of people who aren't following this closely or aren't detecting a, a change here. Uh, we've seen military leaders exploiting rising anti-Western sentiment in the capital. The junta suspended French broadcasters RFI and France 24 television from, from the country. How has the public responded to this so far? Well, I, you know, I think it's been mixed, but the, the main reaction is kind of one of exhaustion. You know, there have been five coups in, coups in Niger since the 1960 when Niger won independence from France. And so this is kind of, you know, while there was some enthusiasm for uh, democracy and the democratic practices while while they're in place, it hadn't really delivered in tangible benefits for for the people of the country. You know, one thing that we really are watching closely is the extent to which outside forces can kind of um, play up this uh, anti-colonizer sentiment. You know, saying that this is a way for the the people of Niger to th- throw off the the colonizers, and we we even saw this from Pergozin, of course the leader of the Wagner group um, speaking on his Telegram channel, at least uh, they, they said it was him speaking. We weren't able to, to verify that, mm-hmm. but that this is an example of uh, countries like Mali and, and Niger becoming more and more independent. Speaking of Mali, uh, this week some of Niger's neighbors signaled their support for the military. Here's what Mali's acting prime minister said on Monday. Refuse d'appliquer ces sanctions illégales. We refuse to apply these illegal, illegitimate and inhumane sanctions against the people of Niger. We warn that any military intervention against Niger will be considered as a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. Sean Carberry, pick up on on what the acting prime minister is saying there. How have other West African nations responded so far to this show of support by by some neighboring countries? So the... Distinction breaks down between countries like Mali and Burkina Faso, which have undergone similar coups in recent years, versus other countries that are still the, the you know the ECOWAS uh, group that Ori uh, mentioned that is trying to pressure the uh, the junta to stand down. Uh, you know, th- this has been unfortunately a progression that's gone on across the Sahel in recent years, where you have countries that. We're partnering with the United States or France and other countries in building military efforts against terrorist groups across the region. Then some of those militaries reached a point where they felt the governments were not doing enough. And in Mali and Burkina Faso, the the military took over uh, basically on those grounds. The Niger situation is, is a little different in that Security had been generally improving over the last couple of years, so the motivation behind this coup is not necessarily a, a you know mirror image of Mali and Burkina Faso. They're they're basically reporting that this is a little bit more personal, that the the military, in, the individual uh, Chini uh, who is in control now was going to be ousted by the president and therefore took action to to avoid that. Mm-hmm. So a little bit different set of circumstances, which is why I think the United States is potentially a little more hopeful that there might be a resolution to this that doesn't involve having to declare it a coup and officially ending military support to what's been you know one of the significant counterterrorism partners in the region.
where the U.S. has a lot of troops, indeed. Let's turn now to Haiti, where there is a growing concern over the kidnapping of American nurse Alex Dorsonville by armed gunmen. She and her young daughter, Haven, were taken from a charity in a poor and densely populated commune in Port-au-Prince. A charity where Dorsonville worked with her husband, uh, runs a school and a clinic in the area. Anna, what has the U.S. government said about this this case? Certainly worrying. What kind of official response have we gotten from, from Washington? Well, you know, they haven't said very much. State Department officials just said that they're working with their Haitian counterparts. But, you know, it just goes to show that this is such a tragic story in itself and a, a chapter of a larger uh, tragic story. You know, the situation in, in Haiti is just so desperate and it's become very, very difficult for international uh members of the international community to actually be in the country and to help the people of Haiti because of exactly this danger, because of the danger of kidnappings and killings. I, I believe there's been 40 people kidnapped and 75 people murdered just since May. So you kind of see the level of desperation and you know how that plays out in the kind of aid that can be given to the Haitian people. Maria, it plays out in the kind of aid that can be given. Certainly, that's that's making the situation there worse. This, this happened on the day that the U.S. said to U.S. citizens they shouldn't travel to Haiti because of, of security concerns. We've seen hospitals, other aid organizations increasingly become targets of, of criminals. What are they demanding, broadly speaking? What, what are these criminals demanding? What, what, what we've gathered is they came in, um, uh, apparently um, seized um, uh, Alex, and then also basically said that they they wanted um, a ransom of one million dollars. Um, this is a, you know a typical way for uh, uh, these these gangs to make money for their operations is to um, kidnap people and demand ran- ransoms. In fact, there have been hundreds of these types of kidnappings just in the in the in the uh, last year. So that that seems to be what they are demanding, and there are broader concerns that this will just have a chilling effect on um, aid workers coming to Haiti at a time when basic services are desperately needed, and this aid is desperately needed. And if people see this and say, well, we can't take this kind of risks, as others have done, Doctors Without Borders, for example, um, um, had faced a similar attack where um, armed um, you know, gang members came in and seized a patient in a hospital. Um, so th- this is not a isolated case, and the trend is worrying because um, if aid isn't provided on the ground, the situation in Haiti, which is already um, terrible, will only deteriorate. Sean Carberry, step back with me. Let's let's look at this country as it stands now, and in, in an historical context as well. We've seen gang warfare increasingly plague Haiti since the 2021 assassination of its president. A local nonprofit, as Anna was saying, has documented more than 500 kidnappings since January of, of this year. Haiti has been asking for an international force to help combat the the armed gangs that we've been talking about, restore security. The UN Secretary General looking for a country to lead a deployment. Of course, this is a country that has a long history of intervention. Uh, and I wonder if you could just kind of chronicle the, the, the concerns it has with an international force going into in going into Haiti at this point. Yeah, as as you noted, there's there's been a difficult history with international intervention in in Haiti, and you, you, know, you have the situation. You look back to 2010 when you had a UN mission there that ended up uh, causing an enormous cholera outbreak. Uh, so you have that, but on top of that, there are allegations of uh, UN peacekeeping missions involved in human rights abuses and uh, and other. Less than uh, than peacekeeping activities in in Haiti, and so you know, certainly a lot of concern and questions about what 
a new mission would do, what it would look like. This week, uh, Kenya did offer to send a thousand police uh, forces into Haiti as part of an international mission. Uh, some people have said that that's you know a positive step that hopefully will lead to other countries stepping up and putting a mission together. But it, it still raises. A uh, number of questions. Um, you know, first of all, what would be rules of engagement of something like this? Because this, this is not a peacekeeping situation. You have reports of eighty percent of the capital under the control of gangs and now a rise in vigilante groups. So this is closer to an active combat situation than than a peacekeeping operation. Uh, plus, there are concerns about Kenyan forces operating outside of Africa. They haven't really done that before. They don't speak the language. They don't have uh, direct ties with Haiti. And Kenyan forces themselves have uh, been accused of a variety of abuses in peacekeeping operations in, in Africa. So uh, it's still a very fraught situation. It's not clear that an intervention will move forward anytime soon. And a lot of questions about what that makeup would be and, and what would be enough to quell the violence mm. uh, and create space for some type of, of political and governance uh, improvement there. Anna Edgerton, a moment ago, you gave us such a good summary of what's to be expected out of these talks regarding Ukraine that are taking place this weekend in Saudi Arabia. There was a, another big summit this week, uh, the first time that the U.S. and the Taliban have talked since the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan in August of 2021. Uh, you had the Taliban meeting with U.S. officials in Qatar for, for two days' worth of, worth of talks. What issues were addressed in those meetings in Doha? You know, it was an interesting combination of issues, first and foremost being a humanitarian crisis. We heard from the State Department that they raised issues facing women and girls, um, you know, kind of uh, health issues in the country. Of course, the Taliban last month um, moved to shut down all beauty salons, which was widely condemned by the international community as overly repressive, not just for, you know, as a gathering place for women, but also for the jobs that women held. So that was certainly addressed in these talks. But there were also economic issues. Um, the Taliban sent representatives from the Afghan Central Bank and the Ministry of Finance to talk about economic stabilization, you know, how to... Um, you know, work with the international community to address some of the sanctions that were put in place for good reason, you know, to address um, some abuses by the, the Taliban, but, you know, have also played out in the broader Afghanistan economy. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting balance for the international community and kind of engaging with this regime that they certainly don't support, but kind of keeping the good of the Afghan people first and foremost and making sure that it doesn't, you know, any international measures don't worsen the humanitarian crisis there. Sean Carberry, I, like so many listeners, I'm sure know you from the, the war correspondence that you did in Afghanistan for NPR for, for so many years. And I'm, I'm curious how you're watching all of this unfold. And uh, Anna mentioning the closure of, of beauty shops. I'm remembering the kind of valedictory audio postcard that you made from Afghanistan before you left. You went to a I don't want to call it a music club. I think a restaurant yeah, where yeah. they played music. But mm -hmm. you pointed out that this was a, a really important symbol of how life had changed in Afghanistan. And here this week, we see news that there's been this kind of systematic destruction of music instruments, musical instruments in, in Afghanistan. Yeah, and, and and you know, as Anne pointed out, and with this latest thing with the, the musical instruments, I mean, since the Taliban took over two years ago, it's just been a, a tightening of the reins of uh, restricting freedoms of of stricter and stricter enforcement of, of Sharia. 
Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, an enormous change from what the international community had been uh, working on for a long time. Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of questions about how successful that effort was. But what, where we are right now is the case of the Taliban it continues to tighten. And it's really a sign that they're at this point immune from international pressure. Um, you know, there, there was hope. There was hope in these talks that dangling the carrot of releasing some of the, the frozen assets and things of that nature might entice the Taliban to open up a little bit on, on women's rights and things like that. But uh, people I'm talking to, uh, you know, right now and after the talks are expressing a lot of pessimism that, uh, you know, the, the Taliban is just taking a harder line. Uh, and there are just serious questions about what leverage there is uh, to try to get them to uh, to soften on that. And as I say, you know, mostly uh, pessimism is what I'm getting at this point. Very quickly here, there, there were funerals this week for 45 people who were killed in a bombing attack in Pakistan. An initial investigation found that an Islamic State group based in neighboring Afghanistan was likely behind that attack. What, what more can you tell us about that faction of IS, of Islamic State? Yeah, this is significant because first it shows that that faction is still active and capable of deadly violence. This was one of the worst attacks in Pakistan in a long time. And it also um, speaks to tensions within Islamist groups. So this was a rally for a um, uh, a pro-Taliban political party ahead of elections in the fall. And there, you know, there are rivalries and tensions that uh, manifested in this terrible bombing um, where dozens of people were killed. And, you know, it, it raises a lot of questions about how, you know, pa- Pakistan, for example, has said we, we are going to hunt um, uh, the, the perpetrators down, but they're in an economic crisis. There is mm. political uh, turmoil as well. So how do they actually do this and get control of the situation? That's a big, outstanding question. Now to an update on the story of Travis King. The 23-year-old U.S. Army private crossed the border into North Korea last month while on a tour of the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. King had been preparing to return to the U.S. to face Army disciplinary action after spending two months at a labor camp in South Korea for a series of criminal charges. His family spoke to CNN this week. It's been very, very devastating to my family and I. And for it to be two weeks, we feel like we should know more right now. Sitting here today, I have, I don't know where he is. The only thing I know is there's a picture of him on the news from the backside And they're saying that Travis King ran across the border. That's the only thing I know. I don't know nothing else. The only thing I was told was that they're talking to them and they acknowledge that that they have him, I guess. But I still don't know, like, if if he's even really over there. Um, I don't know if he is over there. I don't know. It's frustrating. Members of Travis King's family talking to CNN, the Pentagon, said earlier this week that the U.N. has been in contact with North Korea about the detainment of Travis King. And Edgerton, what do we know uh, about, uh, about Travis King and his whereabouts? Well, we do know that U.S. officials have been trying to reach out to North Korea to get more information about his uh, well-being, you know, to make sure that he was, in fact, in their custody, to kind of, you know, get any update on uh, kind of his state of mind and, and physical well-being. Um, the Pentagon press secretary did acknowledge that um, that North, they heard from North Korea and basically just called this essentially an acknowledgement from North Korea that, yes, we have received your request for info. So, you know, yes, there has been some some contact, but still not a robust exchange of information. 
Sean Carberry, there's been a, a series of leaks around this case, and we heard the Pentagon ask that communication around Travis King be moved to classified channels. Why, why does this matter, and how does it change sort of the U.S.'s approach? Well, I, I think some of this is, is really looking at the circumstances of this compared to other cases like this, whether it's North Korea or, or Russia, for that example, uh, case where you had, uh, you know, Brittany Griner, for example, who was detained by Russia under specious charges. This is a case of an army private who was facing disciplinary charges, had uh, a, a track record, who apparently voluntarily crossed into North Korea. Um, so it's it's a different set of circumstances, a different negotiation um, this isn't a case where the U.S. can really hammer North Korea and claim that they're, you know, they kidnapped someone or violated rights. And so I think that's part of the reason why both State Department and Pentagon have, have really not wanted to speak publicly about this this week, both uh, in State Department and, and uh, Pentagon press conferences. Uh, they're very minimalist remarks about this. And, uh, you know, moving it to classified again is just trying to contain this situation. And uh, I, I think just really people want to keep it quiet until they have a better understanding uh, of what happened and what then the potential negotiations are, because obviously uh, there's a lot of tension with North Korea and Russia and Ukraine and U.S. interests there. So this is a distraction that really the U.S. government does not want on any level. Uri Friedman, pulling pulling back, uh, there, there is this frustration and worry surrounding this particular case, but I'd love to get your sense of just the status of the relationship, so much as there, as there is one here between the, the U.S. And, and North Korea at this moment in time. On Wednesday, North Korea hurled misogynistic insults at a newly confirmed U.S. special envoy who's tasked with monitoring the country's human rights issues in a statement on North Korea's official Korean Central News Agency. They called Julie Turner a, quote, wicked woman who was picked by the Biden administration as a, quote, political housemaid. What is the status of, of the relationship between these two countries right now? Yeah, as those insults suggest, the status is not good at all. Um, and by the way, the fact that they even got confirmation uh, that uh, North Korea has Travis King is is progress in, in this situation. Um, I've been on that border uh, where Travis King uh, crossed over. Um, and, you know, there are so many stories of, of calling, get, trying to get in touch with North Korea, North Korea literally not picking up the phone. Um, and in this case, they have at least verified that he's in their custody, it seems. Um, broadly, on the status of the relationship, um, North Korea has been testing lots of missiles, including inter intercontinental ballistic missiles that can reach the U.S. mainland. Um, these are thing; these are the types of provocations that, during the um, Trump administration, used to, you know, um, prompt crisis after crisis. Every time they would test, it's not like North Korea is not advancing its nuclear weapons arsenal. It is, but we are just the United States and its allies are just not responding in the same way they did before because there are so many other competing priorities, and there is really very little dialogue, diplomatic dialogue, other than. For example, the Travis King case, uh, there's very little dialogue between the parties. One thing that I was really struck by um, recently is that uh, Kim Jong-un invited the defense minister of Russia and a top Chinese official to appear with him to watch a military parade of including uh, weapons from North Korea's nuclear arsenal. These were the this was the first foreign delegation to North Korea since the pandemic. It's been very closed off. And you literally, literally had North Korea parading its nuclear arsenal in front of the Chinese and the Russians. It, back in 2017, 
Russia and China join the United States in imposing sanctions on North Korea for its, uh, uh, you know, uh, nuclear weapons tests. We are in a very different world right now, uh, and Kim Jong Un is championing his allies in Russia and China. Russia wants, you know, North Korean support for its war in Ukraine. China's relationship with the United States has really deteriorated, and it, it, while it North Korea Chinese North Korean Chinese relations are very problematic, more than it often seems. Um, China wants North Korea in its camp right now. North Korea is the same way, um, and so it, we we are in a situation where uh, the United States and North Korea are not talking, not making progress on the nuclear arsenal, and North Korea is actually gravitating much closer to Russia and China. And then one last thing I'd say on this is, you know, mm-hmm. I always think about North Korea, North Korean issues as a place to watch to understand the U.S.-China relationship. Mm-hmm. It's one of the few places where there has a ten, um, occasionally been collaboration, like climate change is another issue, and watch. The North Korea space, because that will tell you not just about the state of North Korea's nuclear arsenal, but also the state of U.S.-China relations. Right now, it's a bad sign for U.S.-China relations, too. I note, Uri, there's been a lot more attention paid to the sister of of North Korea's leader. What do you read into that? What does that tell us about sort of the the state of power uh, in in the family that that governs this country? Well, she's taken on a a much more prominent role in recent years, especially kind of on a role of kind of disseminating North Korean propaganda. And I think people are watching it, one, because she just seems to be elevated in the pantheon of North Korean leadership. No one is rivals Kim Jong-un for power, but she certainly seems to be up there. And two, you know, people are watching... She's often, the, in some ways, a public face. She's the one who quotes are attributed to. Um, and so people are watching her to kind of get almost to take the temperature um, of the, the North Korean regime. And, and the, the, you know, the temperature of the North Korean regime runs hot. Um, they often do kind of bombastic statements, um, uh, lash out in really colorful ways. It's kind of their uh, modus operandi. Um, but she has been at the forefront of that. And I think people are watching that to understand kind of almost where the government's headspace is. You, it, people assume that she, ha- she is one of the few people who really is in the inner circle of Kim Jong-un. And, and so in some ways, she is kind of a proxy to understand his thinking as well. Finally, I want to get to sports and the World Cup in particular. In surprise upsets, Brazil and Germany are both out of the FIFA Women's World Cup, but Jamaica and Colombia advanced to the knockout round. Morocco also made it through, and it's their first World Cup appearances. In a stunning game against Italy, South Africa secured its spot in the knockout round for the first time, and the U.S. barely avoided elimination in a draw against Portugal. I've set the scene there. I'm going to turn to Anna first. Anna and I used to work together at Bloomberg News. I know that she, like me, we're both from North Carolina. She went to UNC Chapel Hill, which is home to the women's soccer team that's won, I think, 21 national championships. She also lived in Brazil. I feel like those are the, the bona fides that, <laughs> that make me want to go to her first. So, Anna, how have you reacted to what you've seen so far? And I'm curious sort of who you're rooting for, or who you're going to be watching for here as we move to this next round. Well, I mean, like you said, it's been a wild tournament. I mean, it's, you know, the the teams that have been eliminated, the teams that are still in. I mean, Canada, also former Olympic champions, have, have been eliminated. And, um, you know, this was a team where we had, this was a tournament where we had eight first-time entrants. So this you know, the, the teams that we see advancing to the round of 16 just kind of leave things wide open. However, the United States team is not um, going to have an easy time of it. Like you said, they kind of limped into the round of 16 by uh, managing to fend off a, a 0-0 draw against Portugal, and they're going to face Sweden in their first game of the elimination round. So that's going to be a really tough game for them. Obviously, I'm rooting for them. But they're going to have to really pull together as a team. And you know, there's been so much about women's soccer in the United States, just incredible growth, recognition of the important place it 
plays in, you know, the lives of women and girls and also um, kind of in just sports in its own right. So definitely rooting for them and hope that they can um, make it to the next round. Sean Carberry, you watching this closely? Any any matches that you're going to pay close attention to? So I, I will preface by saying I'm sort of an, an American soccer curmudgeon. Um, <laughs> so I, I do not follow uh, closely. However, I mean, obviously, uh, we'll, we'll always support the, the American team. I do, uh, you know, I think it's impressive that, uh, that Morocco has, in their first appearance, uh, gotten as far as, as they have. So I, I have a little bit of a, an underdog kind of... Uh, sympathy in life. So, um, you know, wish them the best. But um, ultimately, you know, I'm looking at sort of bigger picture things. What is what does this do for for the sport? What does it do in terms of the ongoing, uh, you know, challenges of getting women's sports elevated financially and otherwise to to the level of men's sports? And I'm also looking at the fallout of the uh, tart cherry juice. Yes, um, fascinating. uh, Discussion that's come out of this and whether or not it is true truly a miracle anti-inflammatory and recovery substance that a lot of the American players claim it to be. I have this tab open on my, my browser. The Washington Post, I gather, has looked into this. This is yeah. what the, uh, the U.S. women's team drinks after, after each match. Uri, are you in the club of, of curmudgeons? Or are you a, a big soccer fan? And what are you watching for here as the, the matches continue? I clearly have homework to do on this. On this, I, I was not aware of this thing at all. At least all. on the press juice front, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah, big breaking news on the juice. Okay, I will I will look into this. Um, I am, I'm neither in the curmudgeon camp of Sean's, nor do I compete with the credentials that Anna has in, in analyzing um, this tournament. Um, but, I, but I have been, you know, I, I have been really impressed, one, by just the attention it's received just in the United States. I feel like this is more attention on this tournament than I have seen um, before, and so it just it speaks to the popularity, and also the expectation. You know, when the women's team wasn't, uh, the U.S. women's team wasn't performing as well as people expected, the, the expectations were really high. And so people felt kind of disappointed by that. So um, I, I've just been really impressed by the growth uh, I've seen uh, in the popularity of the sport in this country. Obviously, it was popular in many other countries for a while longer. And I am a... A bit of a, fa- I will admit, a bit of a fair weather fan. I am tuning in this time for the first time, but I've really been enjoying uh, what I've seen so far. And hopefully, uh, next time I'm I'm on, we'll be able to speak with even more knowledge about it. So. A couple of minutes left here. Let me just ask you what you're you're working on or looking ahead to uh, this week. Anna, I'll start with you. What's in your reporter's notebook? Really looking for an executive order from the White House on outbound investment review. This would be requirements to um, kind of notify perhaps some prohibitions of investment in Chinese technology like AI, quantum computing, and advanced semiconductors. Uri, how about you? I mentioned the, the article that you've got in The Atlantic. What are you turning your attention to now? Yeah, I'm actually following these talks in Saudi Arabia with Ukraine on, on potential peace negotiations because re- what we're seeing right now is a giant um, struggle play out over trying to win over other countries and other regions, including what's often referred to as the Global South, countries in Africa, Latin America, um, uh, to uh, different visions of how t- this war could end. And Ukraine is really trying to bring countries on board um, with their 10-point peace plan. And I'm really curious to watch Okay, does the Saudi Arabia talks, do they end up with a joint statement? Um, is, is there a follow-on meeting like uh, President Zelensky wants in the fall, a big peace summit? That'll tell us a lot about, about um, whether Ukraine has been able to win over these countries. And one last thing I'd mention on this is the Prigozhin mm-hmm. mutiny has shattered some views of Russia as stable. And I'm wondering if that will actually tilt the balance in how these countries re- um, orient themselves toward Russia and Ukraine.
Once again, we'll have much more on that story on Monday on 1A. Sean Carberry, lastly to you, sort of what, what are you and your team looking at here as, as, uh, as we look to the next week? Uh, a few things. I mean, right now Congress is, uh, you know, it's, in its August recess, but there are questions about uh, future funding for Ukraine, whether or not there's going to be uh, additional supplemental requests that would, uh, would fund uh, more support to Ukraine as well as Taiwan. So keeping an eye on that and also just as we approach the, uh, uh, the two-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul, uh, again, just continuing to watch there and, and how the international community is reacting and what, if anything, people are able to put on the table as, as a way forward. But I, I, you know, I think we're going to be reading a lot of looking backwards uh, types of pieces on Afghanistan because the road ahead is still uh, something that, that people are having a hard time seeing a way to get through. Sean Carberry, Managing Editor of National Defense. Anna Edgerton is a reporter for Bloomberg News. Yuri Friedman is a Senior Editorial Director at the Atlantic Council and a contributor to the Atlantic Magazine. Thanks to all of you. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the... One more very confusing headline before we wrap up the roundup for this week. It's a question that's lighting up the Internet. Is that really a bear? Or is it a human in disguise? It started with the viral video of Malaysian sun bear named Angela at a zoo in eastern China. On its hind legs with impressive posture for a bear, lumpy hips, not entirely normal for a bear, and waving at visitors. Now zookeepers have denied, officially denied, it's a person in a costume. And a zoo in the UK was perhaps the bearer of good news for us skeptics. Managers of a wildlife park in England released a video of that zoo's sun bear named Kyra noting these animals often display mannerisms that make them look as if they're humans in disguise. Animal rights group PETA says the incident highlights how all zoo animals, including Angela the Bear, should be moved to sanctuaries and wildlife reserves. Mike Kidd is one of his sound designer and engineer. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. And Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. This is 1A. The bare necessities of life will come to you. They'll come to you. Oh, man, this is really living. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR.